You have probably heard a number of sermons examining some of the very different, very beautiful, very powerful and encouraging themes and promises that weave their way through the Apostle Paul's divinely inspired letter to our first century brethren in the church in Philippi. You know, for a congregation that came into existence forged in the fires, as it were, forged in the fires of unlikely evangelism, outright antagonism, and totally undeserved punishment and imprisonment. The little epistle to the Philippians has served the Lord's church throughout many generations as a shining beacon of hope and of joy as time has continued forward. You may recall that it was by the divine intervention of God, according to Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 12, that the Apostle Paul wound up in Philippi in the first place during his first, uh, sorry, during his second missionary journey. And again, we would note that from Acts chapter 16. And I would ask that you might take out your Bible there in Acts and follow along, if you would please, Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 12. In the verses that follow that, we are told how on the Sabbath day, Paul and his companions, they went down by the riverside where some women often gathered for prayer. We see that Paul begins discussing with them these things of God that he knew, the gospel. And, and there was a particular woman there, Lydia. And as he spoke of the things of God, God opened up her heart to understand those things that were spoken by Paul. And so Lydia was baptized and she went on to offer Paul and his companions a place to stay as he continued to teach and preach in that city. When we get to verses 16 through 22 of Acts 16, we're told in that section of the text how a great persecution broke out in response to Paul's actions and how he and Silas had the very clothes ripped from their backs. They were beaten with clubs or rods. They had many stripes laid upon them. Their clothes were ripped off their backs, they were beaten with rods and they were whipped. As we know, whipping or scourging opens up the flesh makes very raw welts and open wounds on a person's back, and they had many stripes laid upon them. And then, to add even more pain, discomfort, they were thrown into the inner prison. And the, the Bible makes a point of telling us it was the inner prison or dungeon, typically in a Roman, um, in, in a jail of, of those days, there were typically, typically, generally, three different places where you could be thrown. There was, as it were, the outer courtyard, and then there was the, the, the rooms that may have had a window, and then there was the, like, the dungeon, the inner prison, the worst part, the most dismal, no daylight, that sort of thing. And so they're suffering the worst possible persecution. And not only are they in the inner prison, they have their feet fastened in stocks, and these stocks were meant as an instrument of torture. They, spread your legs very far apart so that you couldn't lay back or it hurt your hips. 
And if you sat up, it was hard to do because your legs were so far apart. It was an instrument of torture. Backs bleeding, probably. Bruises from having been beaten. We notice in Acts chapter 16 and verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, if you're in a situation like that, what are you doing, Paul? Paul's doing exactly what he should have been doing. James, as we're studying on Wednesday night, told us to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And it's interesting how when you stand out from the crowd, it gets people's attention. And, and, and I want you to see that in verse 25. These guys stood out from the crowd, okay? That's probably the first time in that prison that anybody was ever there that was singing with joy. I don't know that, script doesn't say that, I understand that, but this was not a normal thing. This was very abnormal. And the prisoners are listening, it's like, the text moves on. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. I want you to think about that. We know this was a miraculous occurrence because all of their chains were loosed, okay? How do you take manacles off? I mean, they just pop open because the earth shakes? Think about that. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself because, as I'm sure you've heard discussed before, if a soldier, if a keeper of the prison lost his prisoners, then his life was forfeit as well. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we're all here. I want you to think about this. This was the jailer who had put them in the inner prison. This was the jailer who had overseen their being fastened in stocks. He had caused them great pain. And yet what does Paul do? Now, now some of us in that same situation, when somebody hurts us, we might be tempted to think, fall on your sword if you want to after what you did to me. I mean, right? Satan would at least tempt that. But Paul doesn't do that. He says to the one who has punished him, the one who has overseen his punishment, do yourself no harm. What a beautiful example. Do yourself no harm, for we're all here. That makes a difference. When you respond in the love of Christ to somebody like that who's hurt you, it makes a difference. And it certainly made a difference here. Paul was so different that he called for light, that is the jailer, in verse 29, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He knew there was something different about these guys. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Now, they haven't told him yet what to believe, so the story doesn't end there. Then, after that, verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house, the very man who had overseen their punishment. Wow, Paul. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. See, as soon as they had heard the word spoken to them and they had believed it, they were baptized. Because that's an essential part of the gospel. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. Brethren, that right there, that's how you lead people to Jesus. 
It's more. There's nothing wrong with knocking doors. There's nothing wrong with a lot of the things that we do to win people to Christ, but that's a powerful one. That's how we lead people to Christ, and that is how we keep souls saved in Christ. It's not just about quoting or sending folks to the scripture. That's a wonderful thing to do, and we need to do that. We need to send them to the scripture. We need to ask questions. That's awesome. But it's not just that. It is about living and loving and exhibiting toward them, all people, not just our friends and family, but also towards our enemies, our adversaries, and those who have wrongly wronged us as well. Showing them that kind of love, showing them that willingness that we're willing to share the gospel with them even if they've hurt us. That's, that's powerful. That's powerful. The world doesn't do that. After their release, look at verse 40. In, verse six, in chapter 16, so they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Notice, they went back to encourage the church. This was the beginning of the church in Philippians, uh, the church in Philippi. These were the Philippians, the first converts, the, the core group that that church was started right there in Acts chapter 16. And as I said, now that we know the, the history of, of that congregation, there's been a lot of sermons that have been preached over the years examining several, as I said, of the very different, very powerful, very encouraging themes in the, in the little book of Philippians. For example, one sermon I'm sure we've all probably heard has to do with the joy and rejoicing there. In Philippians, the word joy, rejoice, and rejoicing occur 15 times in four little short chapters. 15 times, joy, rejoicing, rejoice. And, and those 15 times of joy, rejoicing, and rejoice were written by Paul, who guess what, was once again a prisoner. At the time he wrote, rejoice. And again I say rejoice. I'm full of joy and rejoicing. Once again authored by a preacher who was once again imprisoned and being punished when he penned it. As Barclay indicated, and, and you don't need to necessarily scurry and get all these down. You can go back and watch the live stream later if there's too much to take down. But as Barclay indicated, joy is a key word of Philippians. And he gave a beautiful outline of the joy Paul communicated in this letter when Barclay noted the fact that Christian joy includes the joy of prayer, Philippians 4.1, the joy that Jesus Christ is preached, Philippians 1.18, the joy of faith, Philippians 1.25, the joy of seeing Christians in fellowship together, Philippians 2.2, the joy of suffering for Christ, Philippians 2.17, the joy of news of a loved one, Philippians 2 and verse 28. The joy of Christian hospitality, 2.29. The joy of one who has been baptized into Christ, Philippians 3.1. The joy of one who has won a soul for the Lord, Philippians 4.1. And the reason this next one has a star beside of it and is italicized is because I added this one. I just wanted to set that apart. This wasn't Barclay's notes, these were mine. The joy of those whose names are written in the book of life, Philippians 4, 3, and 4. The joy inherent in every gift, Philippians 4, 10. Is Philippians a book of joy? <laughs> every time you turn around. 
every time you turn around. That's another sermon you may have heard. At the 2017 Affirming the Faith, Brother Denny Petrillo from the Bear Valley Bible Institute of Denver preached a whole sermon on Philippians and, and his theme was that he believes it's very possible that the entire book of Philippians was written around one thing, the conflict going on that we see in chapter four, verses one through three, between these two women in the church. Now, he preached and, and he asked the question, as I recall, isn't it possible that Philippians, as he writes about joy and the joy of fellowship and getting along and all of these things, that he's leading up to the fact that these two sisters whose names are in the book of life were right basically at each other's throats and how that needed to stop. And so there's a lot of themes in the book of Philippians, but this morning, I want to examine another theme. I want to examine another vitally powerful theme of this little book. It's a message that can be seen in every chapter, and it serves as the title of this morning's lesson, inspired by a hymn that we, an old, an old hymn, Heaven Will Surely Be Worth It All. That's the hymn. The title of this morning's lesson is, Whatever It Takes, Whatever the Cost. Heaven will surely be worth it all. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. That is another theme that threads its way through the book of Philippians, and that is the very theme and thread I want for us to focus on this morning. We would note, as we start right out in the book of Philippians, if you turn there with me, right in the first chapter, we see this reflected. Whatever it takes, Whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. In Philippians chapter 1, note with me, please, verses 3 through 7, what Paul says. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Remember the first days of the church there? We read about it in Acts 16. Being confident, verse six of Philippians one, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart, watch this now, in as much as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you all are partakers with me of grace. It was a time in history when being close to or identified with the Apostle Paul probably meant you weren't going to live too awfully long. It was dangerous to be a Christian and it got to be more and more dangerous as time went by but notice that Paul again says, you're partakers with me. You're part of the same church. You're part of the same grace, even though it's dangerous. He said, I'm so grateful for you. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. We see this again in verses 12 and 13 tied to another section of Philippians. Follow along with me in 12 and 13 of chapter 1. He says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident 
to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Notice he says, everybody here, be they guard or everybody else, they know about Jesus. We often talk about Paul being a prisoner, <laughs> a captive. I think it was more the Roman soldiers that had to guard him were a captive audience as far as he was concerned. And when he says the whole guard and all the rest, part of the rest is the very household of Caesar. Turn with me to Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verses 21 and 2, look what he says. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. And as I said, that was a very dangerous place to be, was with Paul. But look what he moves on to say in verse 22 of chapter 4. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Think about that. Paul had had a chance to influence and convert, perhaps, Somebody had part of Caesar's household. Consider this. Our brother Josh Ortiz wrote this. The gospel, that is the good news of Christ, had the power to save some in Caesar's family. It also had the power to transform, the, transform them into bold, unashamed Christians. How do I know? Well, Rome believed Caesar was a god. Remember that. Rome believed Caesar was a god. But some of his own relatives denied that claim by following Christ. They were also bold because they risked sending greetings to other Christians through Paul's letter. Consider this. The emperor had the power to do away with these Christians, and later emperors certainly did. They had the power to do all of these horrible things to them, and yet... Paul had reached some in Caesar's household, and not only that, but they were bold and unashamed and unafraid. Now, it wasn't because these Caesars didn't kill people in their own family. They were notorious for that. But can you imagine? You, you, you claim that you want everybody, in fact, in the country to worship you as a god. You are the emperor. You, you're the man. And you kill them if they don't. Simple as that. And some members of his own family were not only converted, but they knew the risk. They knew the cost. They knew what was potentially going to happen to them, especially as his own family members who dared defy him. And yet, here we see in the book of Philippians, not only have they become Christians, but they are mentioned by Paul, bold and unashamed even though they knew the risk. Brethren, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven is worth it all. We see this truth set forth once again in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 8. Paul writes, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not 
in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. And that from God. Paul says here, look, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Y'all be of the same mind. Y'all be of one accord. This is a common theme as well. And brethren, that's not always easy. It's not. We're all different people. We all have different backgrounds, different experiences. It's not easy. But Paul stresses to them, look, do what you got to do to make this happen. Because whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will be worth it. It's not always going to be easy, but our first century brethren in Philippi, they were going to have to let go of and get rid of anything that stood in the way of their unity. They were going to have to get on the same page with God so that they would be with one another. Do we all understand that the closer each one of us gets to God, the closer each one of us gets to one another? Do we understand that? I've often used this. I think I used it in the marriage seminars years ago when I came here. You've got a pyramid. You've got a triangle. It's got a point at the top. I always use it in marriage counseling, too. Um, you've got a pyramid. You've got a point at the top. You've got these two sides. You've got the husband and the wife down here. As each one grows closer to God, what do they do? They get closer to each other. Well, consider that a full 3D pyramid. As we all get closer to God, if that's what we're all striving to do, we all get closer to one another, right? As we move up the pyramid, the, the distance shrinks between us. And that's what Paul is urging them to do. And as I said, it's not always easy. But that is the only way that they were going to present, according to Paul here in the latter part of chapter 1, that's the only way they were going to present a united front. That's the only way that they were going to present the proper and fearless and God-unified front that would be proof to their enemies of their victory in Christ, of their belonging to Christ, of their victory in Christ, and that their enemies didn't have a chance. We move on in chapter 1, verse 29, through chapter 2, in verse 3. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer. Suffering ain't easy, folks. We all know that. Suffering ain't easy, but whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will be worth it. Having the same conflicts which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. It's not always easy either. Paul said that's what it takes. Whatever it takes, heaven will be worth it all. If you don't think so, what about the absolute centerpiece? of this. He, he goes on to give you the absolute. You want to talk about whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. Look at the next few verses. This is the absolute epitome and proof of our theme today. Verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He gave up equality with God. What do we all want? We all want to go to heaven, right? Amen? We all want to go to heaven? Jesus was there and he gave it up to come here for you and me. 
Jesus knew the glories of heaven. Jesus was equal with God. Flawless, perfect, the crown of heaven. And he gave up all of that where he was, where we want to be. He gave it all up to come here so that eventually we could go there. For our salvation, God, in effect, said, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, I want these people in heaven with me. Their being in heaven will be worth it all, even if it takes my son. Jesus was willing to come and being found, verse 8, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, our being in heaven was worth whatever it took to Jesus. And it needs to be to us. That at the name of Jesus, verse 10, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the heaven, and that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, we, like Jesus, must be willing to trust God. We must be willing to trust him and obey him, no matter the personal price, no matter the personal sacrifice, no matter the personal cost or effort necessary in order to get to heaven and to help others get there, too. Apostle Paul went on to say in the context, he said, let me show you what that means and translates to for you. Well, that's my paraphrase, but we'll read it in a minute. He said, that means obeying God by each one working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what that means. That means working out your own salvation with fear and trembling and then working and serving together without griping, grumbling, kicking, or complaining. Paul said that in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 2. Let us read what Paul said right after he gets done talking about Jesus and whatever it takes, whatever the cost. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, or labored in vain. As we consider those verses, basically what we talked about last week, it is up to us to shine the light to the rest of the world of what relationships are supposed to look like. It is up to us, as this diversified group, neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3, 26 and 7, this diversified group, it is up to us to shine that light, not grumbling or disputing, but living and shining our light of, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 to show them what that looks like. And Paul says the same thing here, and he moves on in verses 17 and 18. He says, yes, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad. And I rejoice with you all. He said, look, if I lose my life here, 
but it, but it helps you in your service and your faith, praise God, rejoice with me. What did he say? I'm willing to lose my life if that helps your faith, if that helps you become stronger. Rejoice with me if that's what God's using this for. Do you see it? What was Paul saying? Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven's worth it all. If I'm being poured out, great. He said, for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. He said, hey, don't be sad. If this is what's going to happen, I'm, it's okay. We see the same theme expressed again in chapter 3. We know the first 11 verses of chapter 3, Paul's talking about all those things that he's given up. We notice in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3, he says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Paul, as we know, I don't need to go over it, it's right there in verses 1 through 6, Paul had a, a pedigree to die for. Paul was the greatest of the great, the best of the best, you name it, he had it, he'd done it, he was, he was the man. He said it's garbage compared to knowing Christ. Doesn't even matter. I threw that garbage out a long time ago. I, I don't need all of those things. All I need is Jesus. Whatever I got to throw away, it don't matter. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven's worth it all. Knowing Jesus is worth it all. Doesn't matter what I had to get rid of to go with Jesus, I'm going. We would notice in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 3, that it requires constant study and growth and to leave the past behind. To leave the past behind. Sometimes I talk with Christians. We're so caught up in the mistakes of yesterday. They can't see the hope and the joy in tomorrow. Brethren, there's, Paul had made some terrible Probably none of us ever killed somebody, but Paul had killed more than one of Christians for simply for being Christians. He taught them to blaspheme. He dragged them in chains. Acts 26, 9 through 11, he talks about that. Paul had a lot in his past that was horrible. It was awful. He was as big a persecutor as Christians as anybody there for a while. But look what he says. He said, I, I, he couldn't change yesterday. He knew he couldn't change. All he could do was beg God for mercy for yesterday. He couldn't change yesterday, but he could change tomorrow. And so what does he say in chapter 3? Forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward the goal for the upward call of Jesus Christ. None of us can change yesterday. We've all made our mistakes. But if the only thing we're focused on is the mistakes of yesterday, that is going to rob us of productivity in the future. We have got to put it beneath the blood. We have got to ask forgiveness. We have got to learn from our mistakes. And we have got to press on with joy in our hearts because God has put all that beneath the blood. Are you grateful this morning that God has put the sins of your past under the blood? The man in front of you is. Paul was. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will be worth it all. Did you know that one of the requirements, did you know the requirement of being of the same one lowly mind or like-mindedness is mentioned 10 times in this little chapter, in this little uh, book? 10 times, in four chapters, 10 times. We can't be filled with pride 
whatever it takes, whatever the cost, we need to get together. Verses 17 through 21 shows how. Of chapter 3, you want to know how to do that? Simple. Set your mind on things in heaven, not on things on earth. That's it. That's it. That's how it's done. That's what Paul says. Set your mind on things in heaven, not on earthly things. Boom. Done. That's not real hard. But yet some days it can be a struggle. But whatever it takes, heaven will be worth it. But that's what it's going to take. Going to heaven takes resolving our personality conflicts. It takes resolving our differing opinions in a very personal, very positive, very humble, very obedient and God-approved way. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, as I said, Denny preached on this as being maybe the entire reason for the book of Philippians. Therefore, chapter 4 and verse 1, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore, he said, I'm begging, Euodia, and I implore, same word, syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. I am begging these two ladies. To just be of one mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And as you've heard me say many, many times in the last few months, that may mean, probably will mean, if your brother sins against you, go to him. Matthew 18, 15. Get it resolved. Get it taken care of. Do everything in your power to fix it. Going to heaven requires focusing on the good news, on the good. It's interesting to me how he talks about in chapter 3, the latter part, focusing on heavenly things, not earthly. Then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he talks about these two that are at odds. Then he goes right back into the theme again of focusing on the good things like heaven's things. Going to heaven requires focusing on the good news and the blessings of God every day. Every day. Rather than being constantly consumed with the bad news of the world going on around us. Look what he says, verse 4 of chapter 4. Right after he comes out of this discussion of these two, he continues and says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Every day, all the time, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let, the re let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Don't shake your heads. Don't respond in any way. The question you need to ask yourself this morning is, am I at peace? Am I at peace because Paul's going to tell us how to be at peace if you want the God the peace of God to be with you which surpasses all understanding then rejoice understand the Lord is nearby at hand verses 4 and 5 don't be anxious fretting worrying nervous but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving with th thanking God for all the good stuff let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God will be with you. Is that what it says? Will that work? Will it? God said it. 
it doesn't matter if we believe it or not, it'll, in, in the sense of whether or not it'll affect the outcome, it will work. If we do not have the peace of God in our hearts and in our minds, the way to get it is to rejoice always in the Lord, let our gentleness be known, and pray with thanksgiving to God. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, It'll surely be worth it for us to do this because heaven is worth it. But I can have that peace right here. He says, finally, brethren, verse 8, whatever things are true, and I'd like to spend, I'd like to spend from now till we leave to go to Tri-State on, on these few verses right here, but I can't. But look what he says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Did you see it? He said originally, the peace of God will be with you. If you rejoice, if you pray, if you look for the good, he said, the peace of God will be with you, verse 7. And now, he says, the God of peace will be with you, verse 9. Do you see how he flipped it? You want the peace of God and the God of peace to be with you, then brethren, we need to focus on the good. And, and it's not just about, look, focusing on the good is not always easy. We are inundated by bad news. We're inundated by, by all kinds of stuff. And it's not always easy to focus on the good news. But listen, did these people have a few problems in their lives in the first century as Christians? You think? I'm reading right now, I've got a book, uh, an updated book on Eusebius. You may have heard of him, one of the early historians of the church. And you know, we often talk about, it's like Fox's Book of Martyrs, only not quite, in some of its reporting. But do you, we often talk about how when they assembled, they could be arrested, right? You remember that, and that's why they met in the catacombs beneath Rome and all that. But you know, it wasn't just meeting. I was reading one story in there about these Christians that were being sentenced to death just for being Christians, and there was a person there that was overseeing the punishment or supposed to be uh, part of the, the group that was anti-Christian, and, and he just spoke up and he said, this isn't really fair to do this to this woman. And the man who was over him said, hmm, you sound like you're a Christian. Are you a Christian? He said, yes, I am and he was immediately sentenced to death with those he'd been defending. That's all it took. You think these people had a few problems? You think it was easy for them to focus on the good, the pure, the right, the lovely? You think it was easy for Paul in chains to say, rejoice the Lord always and again. I said, it, it wasn't easy, but you know what? Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will be worth it. Focus on the good. And you know, this necessity of finding and focusing on the good even applies and maybe especially applies not only to the events going on in our world, but to our perception of each other. I'm going to show you this from the book in a minute, but think about that. This idea of focusing on the good, the pure, the right, the lovely, the praiseworthy, not only has to do with news events, but within how we look at each other. Listen. 
don't respond to this one either, but do you have some negative things in your life? Do you have some things that you haven't always done right? Do you have some baggage or some skeletons or a habit or whatever that ain't quite what it ought to be, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? So I already know the answer. I'm just asking you. And I do too. I mean, I'm not perfect any more than you are. And you're no more perfect than I am. We're all in this thing together. Amen? So you know what I need to do? I'm sure that if you looked long enough, deep enough, and hard enough, maybe you wouldn't have to look all that long, deep, and hard, you'd find some, some negative things about Doug Dingley. I'm sure you would. And I suppose if I wanted to put in the time, I could even find some negative things about some of you. I'd rather cut my hand off. You know why? Because I need to look for the good in my brethren. They've all got bad. They need to look for the good in me. I got bad too. We need to look for the good in each other. Look, there's enough humanity in all of us that we're not always all we should be, but we're striving. We're trying. Praise God. We're trying. But I need to look for the good. If you let me down, if you hurt me, I need to look for the good. Why? Because then I will have peace in my life I will have the God of peace with me. And it may not be easy at the moment that you're, you know, after me hardcore. It, it, may, it may not be easy, but you know, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will be worth it. Paul does this with his brethren here. Read a little further in chapter 4. Paul does this. He says in verse 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. It would have been so easy for Paul to say, You slackers! How come you didn't keep supporting me? I needed your help. What's your deal? That's not what he said. He looked for the good in them, even though for a while they couldn't help him. He says, I rejoice that now at last your care for me has flourished again. What a wonderful thing to do. He, he focused on the good, not the bad. He focused on that they had started to care for him again, not that they'd ever stopped. His, their stopping wasn't his focus. It would have been easy. But that's not what it took. He focused on their good. He says, your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. He cut him some slack. Verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. He could have just as easily said, had he been one who focused on the negative, why'd you stop? But he didn't. We need to look for the good in each other, too. Because we're going to find what we're looking for. Paul finally reminds him at the end of this epistle that when he left the Macedonian region that the Philippian congregation was the only one to help him out financially. Verses 15 and following. And you know, Paul didn't have a lot of good things on earth to look forward to after he left there. All he had to look forward to was what he was soon exposed to and thereafter suffered. What he was told awaited him as he persisted in his faithful evangelistic efforts. You know what Paul was told's coming? You know what he endured? If we were to go on in Acts chapter 17 after he left Philippi, after the congregation was established there, we would find that he experienced militant mobs who were made angry by his evangelistic efforts in Thessalonica. As we read on in chapter 17, we would see that they later followed him, helped run him out of another town, run him out of Berea. He would find riotous, blasphemous, militant, aggressive rejectors of God's truth in the cities of Athens and Corinth as we read through the rest of Acts 17 and 18. We move into Acts chapter 19, we would find life-threatening opposition to his efforts at Ephesus. 
And those life-threatening efforts finally culminated with this in Acts 20, verses 22 through 24. Look there. Acts chapter 20, 22 through 24. He says, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Wow, Paul, you sure you want to go? None of these things move me, verse 24, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. But wait a minute, Paul, chains, tribulations, imprisonment, really, joy, yeah, really so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know what Paul said? If I may paraphrase, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven is worth it. Heaven is worth it. I don't care about those things. They don't mean anything. Even my life doesn't mean anything. The only thing that matters is going to heaven and whatever it costs me in this life is worth it. And you know what? He's just getting warmed up. Let me turn this on. He's just getting warmed up. No fear, no hesitation, no reservation. Just a constant joy. Whatever it costs me, I'm going to continue with the Lord's mission, and I'm going to heaven. Finally, in Acts chapter 21, we see our last text of the morning. In Acts chapter 21, He's in Caesarea at the home of Philip the Evangelist. Look in Acts 21, beginning at verse 10. You want to see another illustration of whatever it takes? As I said, he takes it up a level. Acts 21, 10. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. I mean, he, Agabus is letting him know in no uncertain terms. This isn't just a general thing. Paul, this is going to happen. The Spirit says this is going to happen. And, and he ties his hands as an illustration. Paul, do you really want to do this? He took Paul's own belt, verse 11, bound his own hands and feet, and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. This is not a maybe. This is not, I don't know what the future holds. This could happen. Paul, this is going to happen. And those around Paul, when we heard these things, verse 12, both we and those from the place, that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, please don't do this. Paul, we can't lose you. Paul, we love you. Paul, we don't want you to go. You can't, you can't possibly go and do this. We, we love you and we want to protect you. And then Paul answers them and says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? What are you doing trying to hold me back? You're breaking my heart. Why? Because they were trying to stop him from doing whatever it takes they were trying to stop him from having to pay the cost, whatever the cost, that would take him to heaven. And it was breaking his heart. He says, and, and we might look at that and say, well, when he says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart, that, that their emotions were breaking his heart? I don't think so, because the very next line ties it back into what he's about to do. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, I'm going to heaven. 
And I'm going to obey my Lord. And I'm going to be joyful about it right to the end. So when, we would not, when he would not be persuaded, verse 14, we cease, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Brethren, Philippians has a lot of wonderful themes threading its way through it, but one of those that we sometimes miss, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will surely be worth it all. That is just one of the beautiful message of the epistle to our first century Philippian brethren. That is the awe-inspiring message of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the all-encompassing message of the New Testament Church of Christ. And most importantly, that is the message of the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Philippians 2, whatever it takes, yes. And so the question is, as we conclude this morning, is that the message? Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven's worth it all, I'm willing to pay whatever. I'm willing to do whatever, I'm willing to go wherever, I'm willing to endure whatever because heaven will be worth it. Is that the message that people see driving, fueling your life? propelling and motivating your life toward heaven. Is that the message they see? Because if not, then the message that any of our lives may be sending, if it is not that, might possibly indicate something else or other than our being headed in the right direction. The lesson this morning is yours. If there is something that God has told you to do. Maybe you've never been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for fear of family members, for fear of peers or friends, for fear that it's going to cost you. It will never cost you anywhere near what it cost Jesus to provide it. If you've never been baptized into Christ, whatever it takes, whatever the cost, heaven will be worth it. You need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't wait. And if you've done that, but you've heard the lesson this morning and you've said, wow, I, I just, I didn't realize this was so important and there's this thing I've been hanging on to and I, and I can't seem to let go of or I need more strength. I want to be like Paul. It, it doesn't matter. Whatever it takes, heaven is worth it. I want to be stronger in my faith. We'll pray for you. We'll study with you. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost. You're going to hear me saying that in your sleep tonight. <laughs> Heaven will surely be worth it all, just like it was to Jesus. And just like it was to Jesus to provide the way for you to get there. Do you want to go? If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation to go by being baptized or being stronger, needing the prayers, anything you can do, please let us know as we stand and sing. Please let us know electronically if you're at home worshiping right now.